Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Today we are speaking with Dr. A. Peter Ziernowski. Dr. P. is a clinical psychologist who has worked with servicemen and women and with veterans for almost five decades. During his five-year career in the Army, he served as a psychologist both at Letterman Army Medical Center in San Francisco and at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Since 1977, he has been counseling veterans in different capacities within the Department of Veterans Affairs. He currently is the director at the Rochester Vet Center, a readjustment counseling center for war zone veterans and their families. Dr. Ziernowski has over 35 years of teaching experience as an adjunct professor at Monroe Community College as well as a couple of decades at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Hi, Dr. Pete. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is a very important episode for us, and I can't think of a better person to address this topic. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation, and I'm I'm so glad you called, especially so close to uh, Memorial Day. Well, that was our intention. Yeah, certainly what we're going to talk about ties in extremely well with that day. Right. Many Many people don't really connect it. They think Memorial Day, they confuse it with Veterans Day. But yes. Memorial Day is specifically to honor those military service people who have died while serving. Right. So it's especially important to everyone in the military, to those who have lost someone, especially. And it, it's very important to this country overall. Yep. Maybe we, we should say to our audience, uh, please don't say happy Memorial Day to people. Good point. Good point, yeah. Dr. P. Happy Veterans Day. Really Memorial exactly. Day isn't a happy day. It's a yeah, time of much better right? if you don't know what to say. Thank you for your service. If Correct. you know someone has served, I haven't seen a soldier yet that dislikes that greeting. You know, they all square their shoulders and feel very proud for having served. And very embarrassed too sometimes with that. Sometimes statement. they do. They're yeah. very humble. They're very yes. humble when it comes to their service. Before we get started, Dr. P, could you give our listeners just a little bit of your background? Well, I, uh, I spent five years in the uh, military, in the Medical Service Corps. I was a psychologist in, uh, in the military during uh, the end of Vietnam. I served in some nice, nice places. I had good duty. Letterman Army Hospital, which no longer exists in San Francisco. And then I spent three years at uh, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with, with active duty soldiers and their, right. and their families there. And since 1977, I've worked in one capacity or the other with, uh, with veterans in the Veterans Administration. Currently, the director of a special program in the VA called uh, the Vet Center Program, the Readjustment Counseling Service. And uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's important in 1979 Congress and the VA realized that Vietnam veterans were having one hell of a time readjusting back to civilian life. Right. Uh, and they weren't going in to get help. And for some good reasons. A lot of them were very mistrustful of anything to do with the government. A lot of them went to the VA and had some nasty experiences and basically swore off getting help. Yep. And so 
people kind of woke up and said, we got a generation of our young men and women who are hurting. They're not getting help. They're not coming in. We better go out and get them. So they set up this special program called the Readjustment Counseling Service, and our mission is twofold. Provide a full range of counseling services for war zone veterans and their families or any veteran who may have suffered military sexual trauma while in the military, uh, and also to do outreach, to educate the community about veterans' issues uh, and get the word out where veterans can get help. That's It's outstanding, and I have seen the reluctance of people to talk about or go get help among some of my late husband's brothers and sisters who served. Uh, so I, I know it's important and, and very, very much needed in the communities. Well, the hardest, the hardest thing is getting them in the door. Exactly. You know? Cause we exactly. get a lot of calls, from wives and, and, and mothers saying, yes, my, my son or my husband really needs help and he won't come. Right. And uh, I tell him, if you can get them here, we probably will keep them here. Yeah, but, you uh, really will. Yeah, yeah. Come with them, you know, come exactly. and say, let's just go have a cup of coffee. They say we can just come in and see the place. We don't even right. have to talk to them. Just come by. So once they're in, we can talk to them. And oftentimes they stay with us. That That's great. That's great. Okay. Today's topic with Memorial Day so close and everyone's mind on the soldiers that have been lost while serving. We want to talk about what I have always known as survivor's guilt. So can you tell us what is that? And is that, in fact, the correct term? Yes, it is absolutely the correct term. And uh, let me give a simple definition of survivor guilt. Uh, It's a condition that occurs when a person believes that he or she has done something wrong simply because they survived a trauma or a tragedy where other people didn't survive. And uh, let's spell guilt with a capital G. Because exactly. that's that's the crusher. That's the killer. You know, you're you're an expert on grief. You've been doing these podcasts, had it in your personal life. You you could explain grief as well as I do. Uh, but you know, as a psychologist or a mental health professional, we make a distinction about different kinds of emotions. Right. And the one distinction we make is something like grief is what we call a normal emotion. Exactly. When somebody you love dies or somebody you care about dies, how can you not feel that sadness and that loss? Right. Uh, it, 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 it occurs. The thing with natural emotions is if you allow yourself to feel those feelings, to express those feelings, to talk to others about those feelings, things start to get better with time. Mm-hmm. And as you know, that grief doesn't just go away. No. But it progresses. I know when I lost my mother, you know, for the first couple of months, you think about her, you get tearful, mm-hmm. you feel sad. But as time progresses, you can think about her and remember the good times. and You can talk right. about her and you still miss her like hell. But there's not that constant sadness that you have with the initial stages of grief. Right. The trouble with survivor guilt is that they have what we call manufactured emotions. In other words, uh, well, let me give you give you a couple of examples of what I've heard from from veterans and people with with survivor guilt. Uh, I had one veteran who was saying to me, I was walking point and we were ambushed. It was my fault that they died because I didn't see it coming. Okay. Another example. I had someone take my flight so I could have a couple of days leave. And that day the chopper crashed. Yeah. He should have not died. It's my fault he died because I went on leave. 
Right. Give you a civilian example. Uh, I was driving to dinner with my husband and my son. We were broadsided. They got killed and I'm alive. Mm -hmm. I should have seen it coming. It's my fault. Yeah. That's the survivor guilt piece. You know, how we interpret an event, how we try to make sense of it affects how we feel. And look at what these people are doing. Something beyond their control happened. I mean, I tell people when they give me this ambush story, I say, do you know what the definition of an ambush is? <laughs> They're hiding. Yes. They're doing everything they can so you can't see you them. Can't. You can't spot it all the time. You're lucky a lot of times that you can. You have yeah. no control over that. So you feel like you killed them because you missed something. Yeah. And when people have those experiences and those beliefs, sometimes they just never voice them. And they never question them. You know, they don't have somebody like me that says, what the hell were you supposed to do? It was an ambush. <laughs> it was an ambush. If people can understand, it's okay to grieve. If I think about those people dying in that ambush, I feel terrible. Mm -hmm. But if you say it was my fault, you're carrying around that burden of grief. And that's survivor guilt. And that's what crushes people and, and right. keeps them stuck and causes that constant pain that they feel. Understandable. So am I correct that you do consider survivor's guilt a type of grief? Oh, absolutely. Sure, sure. I mean, you can have survivor. Well, let me let me say it differently. You could have survivor guilt. They go to they go hand in hand. OK. You know, obviously, if somebody dies, you're going to grieve that. Yes. And again, that's the natural part. Your rational part is that it was my fault. So, yeah, they, they go hand in hand. OK. You may grieve. I, I grieve over my mother. I don't have survivor guilt over my right. mother. Right, right. And and we understand that, as you make um, in your examples and gave an example of civilian life, we understand that it, it can come from a trauma of any kind That's right. for people. But for our purposes and Memorial Day, we're focusing specifically on our military right. because I believe just from the associations I've had, I believe it's so common among military people. Yeah. Can you give any reasons why it is so common? Well, look what look where they put you when you're in the military and there's a war going on. Yeah. You're constantly around death and destruction and tragedy. Mm -hmm. And and whether it's uh again your your comrades are, are are dying and you're feeling guilty or you take fire from a village, you mortar the village and you go in and all you find are a couple of dead children. Mm -hmm. So you're exposed to that. A lot. And the military does an interesting thing when they train you. The buck stops with you. If you're a, a team leader, if you're a squad leader, if you're a lieutenant, uh, let's say you're a squad leader and you're, you're, uh, you get caught in an ambush and several of your people died. That's on you. You're responsible for them. Right. That's the way they teach you to think. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's awfully tough to, to not think like that and just realize whether I'm in the military or not, I'm human. Right. And this is not normal, normal circumstances. We're in the middle of a war. This is not normal life. This is crazy. And to assume every time somebody dies around me or near me, it's my fault. That makes no sense. But exactly. they've been brainwashed. And sometimes exactly. it's so hard to let that go. Right. I know Tom used to tell a story. Uh, he trained in Texas at Fort Sam Houston to be a combat medic and was sent to Vietnam. And he tells me that when they left the States, there was a plane of, I think, several hundred of them. 
And when they landed in Vietnam, about two-thirds of the plane was sent to the north, and Tom was sent with the group to the south. Out of all of the combat medics sent to the north, only three survived, or something like that, a very, very low number. And Tom regretted for years that he had not volunteered to go Uh, north, just so one more could have gone home to their family. So, you know, combat medics are at very high risk for post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. and for survivor guilt. Because, and I've talked to doctors about this, you know, uh, MDs and civilian doctors. You go away for a couple of months to get trained as a combat medic. And you may be 18, 19, 20 years of age. And you get this really rush course. Then you go into the field and what have you got? You got some morphine, you got some bandages. Mm-hmm. And you are seeing destruction, you know, dismemberment, all kinds of things that, that I've had doctors tell me we never saw that things that bad consistently when right. I was in an emergency room in Chicago. Right. And so here you got this young kid trained, but nowhere near being, you know, really a, a medical professional per se with limited numbers of supplies, making triage decisions, you know who they remember? The ones they lost. Of course. The ones they lost. And again, survivor guilt. Yep. Yep. Is survivor's guilt restricted only to those deployed in combat areas? Uh, Well, again, like I said, you can have a civilian situation, you know, where there's survivor guilt too. Right. Uh, So things like that could happen training missions. I, I knew somebody who was on a training mission and, and was uh, not a drone pilot, but involved in, you know, operations otherwhere and could see things happening. When a plane of theirs with 30 special forces troops crashed and he witnessed that, that crash on the screen and he could see all the death and destruction. And and the kinds of thoughts there was a certain amount of survivor guilt with him. He's he's way away from this action, but you know maybe if I'd have done this or maybe if I'd have been more involved in this part of it or that part of it, that might not have happened. So yeah, I, I'm, can happen to civilians. It can happen to military. As we're saying, though, given the fact of what war is all about, you're going to probably see it a lot more in that population. But it's pretty much situational. Yeah. And we all know anything can happen to anyone at any time. That's correct. Dr. Pete, does it generally have an immediate impact or does it impact the soldier later, like maybe when they return to civilian life? Yeah, that's a good good question. You know, I always said I was never going to ever say that on an interview. That's a good question because <laughs> it always sounds like it always sounds like you're stalling for time. But that's not what I'm trying to do. We like hearing it, though. Just you know, we like hearing that we. Yeah. Think it's a good question. Okay, that was a great question. Let me address it. Uh, and I'll use I'll use the again. I I I kind of got most of my experience working with veterans forever, Vietnam veterans. Let's say you're in Vietnam for, for, for a year, okay, and uh, you see your first death, whether that might be a friend or, or whatever. Uh, initially, people will tell you that, you know, it, it's very hard to, that first time almost makes you sick to see people dead, to see people dying. What they learn quickly, and that's not something they do consciously, it's something that happens automatically. If you allow yourself to feel losses or and grief. At this point, we're just talking grief. If you allow yourself to feel that grief and uh, 
you're going to get yourself killed or you're going to get other people killed. So your mind has a way of protecting you. And how does it do that? We, we call it psychic numbing. All of a sudden, you numb yourself to all the death and destruction around you. Whereas before you were just overwhelmed, now you just kind of walk around it. You walk through it. You can't allow yourself. You don't allow yourself to grieve. That, that's the first thing, that you don't allow yourself to grieve. And so maybe while you're still in that war zone, you're okay. And then you come home and you're surrounded by other soldiers who have experienced with you, you know, like you have had, and you talk and you joke and get drunk and you deal with it. But oftentimes, yeah, it'll be a little bit later, maybe when they're safely at home and comfortable. And here's where survivor guilt does its destructive things. You'll find people with survivor guilt who basically are are sabotaging all the good things going in in, in going on in their lives because they don't think they deserve it. I don't deserve to be alive. I got a wife who loves me to death, and and yet you're pushing her away. Mm -hmm. I've got kids. You can't get involved with them. You got a good job. You got a chance for a promotion, but you don't take it because you don't deserve a promotion. And, and that's that destructive nature of that survivor guilt. Yeah. Are survivor's guilt and PTSD related at all? I will say this. An awful lot of the people that I see with PTSD, and that's my major clientele, an awful lot of them have survivor guilt. Mm -hmm. You could have survivor guilt without PTSD because it, it, it requires like three or four different categories of symptoms. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have all of that, but they could still be suffering from, from the survivor guilt and they still need, you know, if they have that survivor guilt, they can certainly benefit from some treatment. What are the emotional responses someone realizes with survivor's guilt? Certainly it can cause a lot of depression. Mm -hmm. It can cause an awful lot of irritability. Uh, it can disturb people's sleep. It, as I said, it, it, it can cause you to push people away and sabotage the things that, uh, you know, in your life that you deserve, but you don't feel like you deserve. So I, th I think it runs a gamut of negative kinds of emotions, but I, I would yeah. say depression and, and, uh, well, depression would be the biggest part of that picture. That's certainly understandable. Yeah. What then is the recommended treatment? We tend to use something called cognitive processing therapy, and it goes back to something I said early on in our discussion. How you think, how you interpret something that's happened to you will affect how you feel. And so what I try to do, and I think what cognitive behavioral therapists try to do, people who are trying to help somebody with survivor guilt, is we try to understand what are you saying to yourself that gives you this burden of guilt? And, and it's interesting that people will sometimes aren't even aware of what they're saying to themselves that's got them so messed up. Now, this, this example is a little bit different, but I, I, this is more related to, to post-traumatic stress disorder. But I, I, I want to explain to you and give an example of this idea of how you think affects how you feel. Uh, I was working with a Vietnam veteran who was in military intelligence, and he was a lieutenant. And uh, he was all excited in Vietnam. They captured a prisoner and they found out the location, the exact location of a large enemy force. He goes in to report to his boss. I believe he was a major. And he goes into the major's tent. The major's got a map of that area of Vietnam on the wall. He goes up to the map and he says, sir, we caught a new prisoner. 
here's where the, or, uh, uh, we got info information about this unit. They're here. And uh, the major says to him, thank you very much, Lieutenant. I appreciate that. And as he's starting to walk out, the, uh, the major says, but we know the enemy is over here. And he points to a different area on the map. The guy comes back. He says, sir, this is hot intelligence. This guy has got no reason to be lying to us. Here's where they are. Major still won't buy it. That'll be all, Lieutenant. He sticks around. He starts arguing with the, with the major. You don't win an argument with a boss like that. And eventually, basically, he gets threatened. You will leave now or I will have you removed. Mm-hmm. That night, that major sent out patrols. He sent a patrol out into a lot of different areas. The one that went to that area that this lieutenant told him about got wiped out. He is sobbing, telling me this story. We're talking 35 years after the event. Mm. And he said, it's my fault they died. Ever since it happened, it was his fault. He he never questioned that. And so cognitive behavioral therapy says, wait a minute, let's talk about that. Explain to me how that's your fault. You did tell me you kept arguing with this lieutenant, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, he was ready to throw me out or, or, or you know, get me arrested. I said, so you tell me, what else could you have done? I don't know, but I, I should have done something more. When you hear those shoulds and coulds, you know you're talking about something that's not quite accurate. I said, what else could you have done? I said, you're an officer. I, yeah. I said, well, you had a 45. Why don't you pull out your 45, put it to the major's head? I said, you'd still be in Leavenworth. And he still would have sent that patrol out right. and he would have died. How is this your fault? Now he's really sobbing. And he says, for the first time ever, he said, maybe I did all I could. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there there wasn't there weren't angels that came out of the sky and blowing horns. It wasn't that right. hallelujah moment. But for the first time in 35 years, he challenged that thing that had him stuck. Right. And over the course of the next few okay. months, we were able to work on that. And where I got him was to the point where he said, you know, I think about that now. And I feel so sorry. I feel the grief for that loss. Right. I feel anger for that damn major. Right. But he said, you know what? I don't feel guilty anymore. Uh-huh. And it was right. like it lifted 35 years of pressure off his shoulders. So that's wow. what cognitive behavioral therapy okay. does. It challenges those. You were blindsided. You were, you know, yeah. The car came in and blindsided you. Yeah. What could yeah. you have done? Right. And it, yeah. it ta- you got to keep after it and after it and after it. Like with this guy, if 35 years, you've never questioned it. Anytime you thought about it, it's my fault. Yeah. It's not going to be turned around in, in right. a month or two months or even a year, but you right. got to keep going at it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come on. Look what you're saying to yourself right. again. Right. We talked about this. Come on. Yeah. So that's, the, that's the approach that seems to work the best. Yeah. And I can understand where it would take a professional to accomplish that because family would eventually give up. All right, you know, let's not, we don't want to upset him anymore. Let, you know, let it go. Yeah, let it get, go. Put it behind you for God. Right. Exactly. Just, yeah. And yep. they, they, they would give up in one yep. way or another, but a professional will keep going because they know that at some point there will be this breaking point, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You raise a good point. Uh, if you have somebody in a, in a family that's suffering with any kind of significant disorder, mm-hmm. it affects the whole damn family. Mm-hmm. Sure it does. Yeah. Sure it does. So, you know, we, a lot of times I will ask a veteran, I'll say, look, how about inviting your husband or your wife in? And I'm not going to tell them anything about what we talk about, right? 
but let me tell him a little bit about the kind of symptoms that we see people have who are suffering from what you're suffering. And if you can at least educate the family, I I worked with a a World War II guy who who never came into treatment until he was about 85 years of age. And uh, he said after we worked together a while, he says, you know, my wife used to just think I was a mean old asshole, she says, but now at least she understands why. (laughs) (laughs) And it helps, you know, it doesn't doesn't make it all go away. It's not like, uh, you know, you're going to say to the family, oh, well, he's he's got these problems. You got to put up with it. But it's nice to help them understand what's going on. Right. But unfortunately, sometimes the family doesn't last that long. You're right. And there's a lot of, well, let's talk about Vietnam veterans. How long were you married? Well, actually, Tom was my second husband. We yeah. were married just 12 years before okay. he died. Okay. But I, uh, I've had yeah. so many guys come back. And when you're distant and you push people yep. away, a lot of wives left. Yeah. I got a group this after. I had a group this afternoon where I got about three guys who are going on their 50th anniversaries or a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yeah. So there's some wives who have seen the, the good and the bad. Yeah, and absolutely. these guys now, they just swear by their wives. She kept me saying, yeah, I don't absolutely. know how I would have done it without them. There are some diamonds out there for sure. Yeah. There are indeed. And they should be commended. They shouldn't be forgotten. Right. So Dr. Pete, my next question is, does it ever go away? But obviously you just talked about people that have been married for 50 years and they're still <laughs> dealing with it. Well, that there we're talking about post-traumatic stress. Okay. okay. And also with the, this was a Vietnam group. A lot of these guys didn't come in for treatment until 20, 25 years right. after Vietnam, after right. they retire. So many of them sure. get by, they put up with it. They, they, they drink or they keep themselves busy all the time so they don't think. Right. And they get to the point of retirement when all of a sudden they got a lot of time on there and all of a sudden their mind starts going back to things that they don't want to, where they don't want to go. And that brings them in. Right. And again, the longer they've lived and tried to deal with this with alcohol or just keeping busy or whatever it is, it's harder to move them on. But I got to tell you, these guys are an inspiration to me. I've seen some of them when they when they first started in treatment that uh, I I I could have sworn the marriage is going to be over very quickly. Right. Uh, you know they they were upset with they the relationships they've had with their kids and now their kids are adults and they won't talk with them. And I've seen the work they've done in putting those things back together. Mm-hmm. And do they still have nightmares once in a while and and anger once in a while? They do, but they've learned how to control it and mm-hmm. cope with. And they're so much more functional. Their quality of life is so much higher. Do they still have post-traumatic stress? Yeah. Yeah. But boy, have they, have they done a lot of good work and they're feeling a lot better. Yeah. It's wonderful. How can the general public or family members, how can we support our veterans or those very recently back from active duty? How can we support them? I do. Well, the vet centers, we, we have an agreement with the uh, uh, National Guard. Anytime a unit comes back from the National Guard, about two months after they return, they usually have a, an event like a weekend training in a nice hotel, just welcoming them back. They get a lot of training. They can bring their families there and they invite us in from vet centers. Mm-hmm. We sit down individually with every one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's one thing to get up in front of a group and say, hey, if you got any problems, I'm here in this room. Come see me. Right. They're not going to come. <laughs> no. Right. 
But if they're forced to come in and talk to me behind right. closed doors, then, then I can talk to them. Sure. And I give them a little, you know, they got a little checklist they fill out yeah. about, you know, do you have this problem? Is this going on? And everything is good. It's always oh, good. Of course you know? it is. So they come in and I say, well, it looks like this wasn't such a bad deployment. Uh, how many others have you had before? Really? Really? Were any of those harder than this one? And then you start hearing the stories. And yeah. oftentimes I'll tell them, if you want to bring your wife in, bring her in too. Or your husband in, bring him right, in too. Right. And that is so much more helpful. But what I other also find helpful is while they're deployed, we have on occasion been invited in to talk to the spouses because they're getting together for an event. And that is the most helpful thing. Because I can say to them, hey, look, there's always a period of adjustment when somebody comes back from a war zone. Right. It, it stands to reason. You can't just pick up where you left off. But usually, given simply the passage of time, people work through their nightmares and their anger and their drinking and things start to settle down and, and they, they're doing okay. But some of them aren't going to do that. And you're going to see it before they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I'd like you to do and again, I, sh I shouldn't talk like this, but I, ba I, I basically say to them, what you got to do is give them a good kick in the ass, mm -hmm. tell them you need to get some help. Right. So I think that's what family can do. You know, if they're concerned about their spouse and they see symptoms, they're not the same as they used to be right. before that experience. You know, you got to say to them, hey, look, honey, will you please go see somebody? And I, I don't let it get to the point, and I've, I've seen veterans who suffer this. My wife said, if I don't get help, she's out the door. Right. And so I'm here, but I don't think I need to yeah. be here. That's but then ultimatum. when we start, but they're here, you see. Yeah. And then yeah. I, can, I can say to them, I don't want you to talk at all. I'm going to describe to you some of the things I see in people who have been mm -hmm. to war like you. And I talk about the nightmares, and I talk yeah. about the numbing, and I talk about the the hypervigilance, you know, and, and all these mm -hmm. others. And you can just see their eyes getting bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, hey, you know, if, if, if you're having any of those kind of issues, at least now you know, I know yeah. what it's like. Yeah. And I know you're not crazy. So maybe we can help get it better if we can work right. together. Right. Mm -hmm. That's outstanding. Yeah. Well, I think that's about all of the great questions Stephanie <laughs> and I have for you for today. But before we wrap up, I want to offer you some time for you to speak, you to the military and their spouses or their parents or whatever the case may be, and just tell them from your heart what you want them to know. I think anybody who's willing to put their lives on the line so that we can have the freedoms that we have deserves everything we as individuals and, and, and as a country can offer them, and not just them, but their families. Mm -hmm. uh, the sacrifices made by the families of veterans, uh, and especially combat veterans, and, and having to deal with the residuals of that combat experience, it, it takes some very special people to work together, keep those families together, and uh, we, we owe them all the respect in the world. And that's why I think Veterans Day is so important with the thank you for your service. And a lot of veterans didn't want to hear that, Vietnam veterans. It was too little, too late. But they yeah. kind of changed that tune now. Now, you know, it's like, hey, look, can't you just say thank you instead of saying, oh, yeah, you should. Where were you 20 years? Just say thank you. Right, <laughs> and, right, and, and so, you know, just uh, I have nothing but respect for them. 
Uh, I want them to understand that anybody who comes in here to see us and they're suffering from you know, war-related issues or military trauma issues, and you're having symptoms, we know you're not crazy. You know, and that's that's a fear a lot of them have. I, I don't. You're going to think I'm crazy, and then we get them in, and maybe we get them in a group, and they find out, hey, they're talking to nine other crazy people, right. got the same symptoms they do, and all of a sudden they feel like, well, it's not just me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just if you have issues, please, you know, give us the call. Come in and see us. What's to lose? What's to lose? You can walk exactly. in, you can walk back out if you don't like what we're saying. Right. Right. But there's everything to gain a whole new life. In fact. And if people are not, I mean, here we are in Rochester and we have this wonderful program connected with the VA. If they're not in our area, where can they go? What, what resource would you suggest? Uh, you go to www.vetcenter.va.gov. Okay. There is a directory in there. There are 300 vet centers in the country. Okay. 300 of them. There's at least one in every state. Mm -hmm. New York state, we have about 16 Mm -hmm. of of vet centers. There's going to be one close to where you live. So anybody who hears this podcast and they're down in Erie, Pennsylvania, or or they're in Ohio or whatever, you go to that website, you press the directory, you press your state, it will bring up the address, the phone number, everything you need to know about the closest vet center. And I I will say this, vet centers are community-based. We're not part of the hospital system. We're not part of the outpatient clinics. We have our own. I like to think we're special forces in the VA. I like that. Starting in 1979, and we were given our marching orders, and we are in the community. Our our building is a beautiful building Mm -hmm. in Crossbridge Office Park in in Rochester. Mm -hmm. And you can see people when they walk in, they breathe a sigh of relief Mm -hmm. because it's it's beautiful. It's very nice. It's calm. It's relaxing. The VA does a great job. I don't. I'm, I never want to badmouth the regular VA, but they're large, they're crowded, mm-hmm. they can be noisy, and and there's a little bit more, a lot more bureaucracy than you're going to get right, here. Right. You know, well, you got to go here first, then you go here, and then we'll make you an appointment to see this and, and to see that. Mm-hmm. People walk in the door here, and we say, "Hi, you know, well, come on back, let's talk." Mm-hmm. Next time you come in, bring your DD two fourteen. It's nice if we have that on file. How can we help you? And uh, just the comfort level is so good. And we can also then encourage them. You ever been to the VA? No, I don't trust them. I know a good doctor there. You know, you're entitled to medical care. You could get hearing aids. You could get this and you could get that. Let me send you over there. So we try to help get them anything they need. If we can't do it, the VA can't do it. We look for community partners. Rochester is a great place for community Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Dr. Pete, thank you so much. We're going to make sure and put that website information on our website, along with your contact information and uh, information about our podcast. It'll also go in the episode notes for the podcast. We do have some international listeners. Survivor's guilt is not restricted to the United States. It is wherever. Any more, no more than grief Exactly, is. exactly. Right. So hopefully... If our international listeners are facing an issue like this, they will look to their own communities for some resources, for support. It's incredibly important. As Dr. Pete said, they give their lives. They put their lives on the line for us so that we can enjoy the freedoms we have. And it's invaluable. Or like the commercial says, priceless. I truly believe that. Yeah.
Okay. It's been an interesting conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, You've answered you. some of the questions that have been hanging with me for years. And I know you probably have helped some listeners better understand the issue of survivor's guilt. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. All right. Thanks, Dr. Pete. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.